Hi, I'm Stephen Cook, a Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I recently wrote an article in Foreign Policy Magazine called The End of Hope in the Middle East. I'm joined today with my old and dear friend, Amy Hawthorne, the Director of Research at the Project on Middle East Democracy, to talk about the article. Hey, Amy, how's it going? It's going well. Stephen, I'm honored to be on with you, a veteran of podcasts. <laughs> well, thank you so much. So listen, you know, I, I don't know if I just lack imagination, but in thinking about the region, literally from one end of it to the other, I really can't find much to be hopeful about. Um, what did you think? Was I on the mark or am I missing something? Well, you know that for many decades now, I've liked to be contrarian with you. So let me offer a bit of a contrarian take to your recent article, which was, of course, like everything you write, um, really provocative in, in the best ways. Well, thank you. When I look across the Middle East and North Africa, I also see a lot of really uh, bleak, bleak situations, um, things that can cause me and of course people in the region to feel despair, a lot of things to worry about. I don't see the region as a whole as a quote dystopia as your article described it. Mm. I think that that is actually too bleak oh. and it, it casts the entire region with sort of one brush of like unsolvable conflict when in fact, Yes, this is a time when there are a lot of very serious conflicts taking place simultaneously. Perhaps that's one thing that makes it different than past areas, uh, excuse me, eras of conflict. But I don't think that's true for the entire region. We see a lot of places that also look relatively stable, at least for the moment. Uh, and we see a few places where there's, you know, positive change taking place. So I think perhaps I wouldn't use the word dystopia to describe the whole region. To me, that just sounds like painting with too broad of a brush and mm. so negative that it just causes people in the, in the international community and especially people in the region to just give up, which I don't think is like a viable solution at all. I think you make a, I think you make a really good point there. I will point out that one of our colleagues uh, emailed me and said that he had read the piece carefully and said, oh, but you forgot this and you forgot this and you forgot this and you forgot this. But I do take your point about um, painting the region with too broad a brush. I guess um, one of the points that I tried to make in the article is that something that actually I think you've made from time to time is that things that seem stable aren't necessarily stable and that the region is so dynamic and that the layers and complexities of problems and the kind of combination of global problems like the pandemic and fights over identity and bad governance in the region are all converging to make this, uh, to my mind, a, a situation that, um, at least for the time being, fates poor Middle Easterners to um, resurgent authoritarianism, violence, uh, and desperation in a variety of other ways. But there was one other one other issue that I, I wanted to ask you about. Again, you know, my conclusion in the end is, well, geez, you know, these problems are profound and complex and layered. I don't, I can't really, and you have a lot, you were actually had the privilege of working in the U.S. government. To my mind, I can't figure out what it is that the United States could do that's constructively 
in uh, a variety of these places? What what can we do in in Syria? What can we do in Yemen? What can we do constructively in a place like Libya um, that would make it better for the people there? Yeah, that was another part of your article that I took issue with when you basically concluded that, I'm paraphrasing, you know, the best response for the United States to the conflicts and challenges of the region is really to do nothing. Uh, to me, that would be the worst possible solution. All of the conflicts that are happening right now in the region, we really need to think about them, first of all, in different categories. The most urgent, the actual you know, violent, bloody civil conflicts that are going on and affecting the largest number of people are obviously in Syria and then in Yemen and then in Libya. And then we sort of have a second tier of countries where economic and political conditions are really bad and instability, you know, large scale instability is certainly possible. Um, and obviously Lebanon is, is in that category, Iraq also. And then there are countries where they continue to be ruled by an iron grip and you sort of have this imposed authoritarian stability such as Egypt or some would even maybe say Morocco and Jordan could be in that category. Um, and in the long term, I don't believe that the authoritarian rule will be stable. But essentially the United States has been, there's a lot that the United States can, can do to help end the major conflicts in the region as sort of a first order of business. There's so much that the United States could do tomorrow, this very night, to compel the Saudis to bring uh, the war in Yemen to an end. So the idea that the U.S. has no role, I don't think is accurate. I think the U.S. does have a lot of influence if we used to choose it. And the idea that there's no interest for the U.S. to be involved in solving these conflicts, I think is also, with all due respect, uh, short-sighted. Well, I just think I'm not quite convinced that we can solve the problems of the region. But since we're running out of time, we're going to have to do it, continue this over a bottle of wine. What do you think? Absolutely.